Good afternoon. Hope you're all doing well. That was a delicious lunch. A very, uh, very good welcome to the St. John's family. My wife and I are very excited to be here. Um, we were asked, which is better, to have falling on us and around us all the time, snow or pollen? We choose pollen every day of the week, twice on Sunday. So we are glad to be here. Whoever ordered up this beautiful weather for this time, thank you. It only uh, adds more motivation for us to get back as quickly as we possibly can. So we're glad to be here. Uh, I want to start just by introducing myself, since uh, it seems as though the Lord has appointed a time for us to be together and to walk together. Uh, so I figured let's take just a moment so that you could uh, maybe get a picture of who I am. <clears throat> and one of the first things that you need to know, and you're going to hear this uh, often, I imagine, is that I possess nothing unique to myself. Here's what I mean by that. My wife's name is Corey. My brother shares my devilishly good looks. My daughter was born on my birthday. My son has my middle name. Some of these decisions I maybe could have made better on myself. But what that means is that I bring nothing unique to the table. And the truth is, when it comes to uh, scripture and the word, and when I get up to teach, and when I get up to preach, my goal actually is exactly the same. I want to bring nothing unique to you. I might want to say it in a unique way, so that we can hear it in a new way, so that it, we can be affected by it in a new way. But the truth is, I don't want to say anything unique to uh, or different than what is said in scripture, and what is said in by the, the apostles as well. So this is a perfect subject for me to teach on, the apostles' teaching. Um, because it is Jesus is the source, he is our, the content, he is the means by which we are given life and the means by which we are the mechanism to bring life to the community in which we're called. So um, that's what I feel called to do, and that's what I'm excited to share with you and to do with you here uh, in St. John's uh, and in Florence for a while to come. So with that, why don't we get started? I like to uh, open Bibles as much as possible, so if you have a Bible with you or on your table, I encourage you to open it up. We're primarily going to be in the book of Acts, um, but we will do a little bit of flipping around, uh, mainly to Luke. But if you want to open up, we're going to be in Acts around chapter 1 and 2 for the most part. I also guess I need to give credit to, uh, to Ken for arranging the sequence of speakers in the way that he did. I saw the little headshots. It's a great lineup, folks, that I've known for a while. But ending with the bishop, starting with me, that's the trajectory that you want to be on. That's where you want to go. So we're going to be looking at uh, this series. It's going to be focused on Acts chapter 2, beginning with the 42nd verse and continuing with the 47th verse. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. So this is the focus of our series today. And the first thing, as an introduction maybe to the, to the series as a whole, uh, the first thing to point out is that these four things, these are the mark of the disciple of Christ, and these are the mark of the church. These four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. That's it summed up. That's what we're about. That's what walking with Christ is about. That's what being in the body of Christ as the church 
It's summed up into those four things. So that's going to be the focus of this Lenten series that we're kicking off today. Now, what is the result of those four things that disciples and the church do together? That's what we read in verses 43 through 47. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we see in verses 43 through 47, what is the result of the work that the apostles did in their teaching and in their fellowship and the breaking of the bread and in their prayers? Well, we see the Lord showed up, didn't he? The Lord showed up and he magnified their efforts, right? He, he brought life to their work in such a way that more and more and more gathered in and were brought into what was happening in the spirit of the Lord. That's the DNA of the church. That's what we are about. And the first thing for us to know as we get started with this series, and the reason that this series is so important for us is because you and I, as the church, individually and together, we have a very special job. We are the mechanism by which God is going to reveal his grace to the community and to the world around us until Jesus returns again. Right Now, that's not to say that it's up to us. Right, You and I know that we have a tendency to get things wrong over and over and over again. So it's not that it's up to us necessarily, but something happens when we respond to the faith in which we've been given, the faith that is on display on the cross. Something happens. The Spirit shows up in a way that our work is magnified. And so it's important for us to know that as the church, that we have a very special job, and that is not only to preach and to teach the Word, but to live the Word and to act the Word. Um, that, that the gospel brings to us today. So today we're going to focus in, we're going to look specifically on the apostles' teaching. So we're going to look at this teaching from a few different angles. We're going to look at the source, and we're going to look at the content. We're going to look at the method by which the apostles' teaching is conveyed. And then if we have time, hopefully a little bit towards the end, we'll take a look at what does that mean for us today, right? Without the apostles walking the earth. What does that mean for us to, to follow in the tradition of the apostles and in the apostles' teaching? So let's put our passage from Acts chapter 2 into a little bit of context. If you want to flip back and look at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. So Acts is the second half, if you will, of um, the book of Luke and Acts together. So written by the same author, addressed to the same uh, recipient, Theophilus. Theophilus, it's interesting, um, Theophilus is almost certainly a person. There, there's very good evidence that he, he actually existed. He was a person who received this book. But there's also another, the word of the name Theophilus means one who is loved by God. It, it conveys the idea of a friend of God. So it's helpful to know that because not only was um, this written to a specific person, but there's a general understanding that is written to a broader audience, including you and I as well. So when we look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we see that what's happening here is that it's being connected to the end of the gospel of Luke. 
there's a transition that's being made from the time when Jesus lived and did his work and his miracles from the time that he died and was raised. Now we're moving into the next chapter, the, the chapter in which the Holy Spirit comes and works, and we see the work of the Spirit moving through the church. And so that's sort of the focus of the book of Acts, is how the Spirit enabled the apostles and the disciples of Christ to move and to grow. So we read first that it connects with the book of Luke in chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So it's both connecting and completing the gospel of Luke. We can flip back to the end of Luke to see exactly what that connection is. It's important that we, that we go here because we're going to take a look at what is the source of the apostles' teaching. Is this something that they made up when they were gathered together in uh, the upper room, when they were um, figuring out after Jesus had come uh, and had been around them, you know, were they coming up with a game plan? Okay, what are we going to do? What do we say? All these people are wondering what's going on. What is the source of their teaching? It's important for us to take a look at that and to, um, and to understand that. So we're going to turn back to Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 47. Hopefully your index finger has gotten worked out because you're going to do some flipping here. So Jesus has died at this point in the story. He's been raised, and now he's making an appearance, um, a dead man walking. And he's making an appearance amongst the disciples. And he said to the disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus looks back into the Old Testament. He's with his apostles, and he says, read all this. This is about me. That's that's a big change. It's a big change, and that's a big claim that only a dead man walking can make, right? Right? Only when you've come back from the dead can you say, I am the fulfillment of all prophecy, of all psalms, of all scripture in which uh, you have been trained up and raised up. That's me. So Jesus focuses their attention and he says, I am the fulfillment of all that has come before, of all that you've read about and all that you've heard about. In 2447, he says that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Then he applies that teaching in verses 48 and 49. He says, you are the witnesses of these things. This happened on your watch while you were here. He said, you are the witnesses of these things. And then he says in 49, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus has made another promise to these apostles. He says, you are my witness, and I'm sending a helper. And the implication is that a a great work is going to happen. So Jesus, the source of the teaching that Jesus has for his apostles, 
is Jesus himself. He is the one who is walking amongst them, who is saying, look at me. I am the source. I am the fulfillment of these things. And I am the content by which you will make an impact on your community and on your world. So the source of the apostles' teaching is Jesus himself. Let's take a look now at the content. What is it that the apostles took? So they had this time with Jesus. They saw him. They saw the miracles that were done. Uh, We all know that the apostles, while they were walking with Jesus, they had a a little bit of trouble understanding exactly what was going on. Uh, It seems that over and over again we hear uh, that the apostles are making wrong decisions and wrong interpretations of the acts that are happening before them. Jesus has to sort of pull them aside and say, get in line, you know, figure this out. Who am I? I am the Messiah, right? We, we think of the transfiguration in the book of, of Luke, and uh, the disciples who are with him are like, uh, Lord, we don't know what, what's happening. Let's, let's make some, some shelters for you. Let's, let's try and figure this out. And, and Jesus has to explain, no, there's something greater going on uh, in that moment, in that transfiguration. So let's take a look at what is it that the apostles learned from their time with Jesus what was the content of their teaching? So let's flip back. We're going to be back in Acts. Back in Acts chapter 2. So just before the focus of our series, verses 42, something very important for the life of the church happened. In verses 14 through 41. So in 14 through 41... Peter gives his first sermon to the church that's gathered. So to to set the scene, um, the the disciples and the apostles were in the upper room. Um, Jews from around uh, the world of that time had gathered in Jerusalem. Uh, They all spoke different languages, uh, not the same language. And uh, then the Spirit descends on the apostles, and they go out, and what's known as the Pentecost occurs, right? And every Every sojourner who is in the land of Jerusalem hears in their own tongue um, the, the word of Christ spoken through the apostles. And it's this great and magnificent event. Everybody's confused. Nobody knows exactly what is going on. There's the uh, accusation that the apostles are drunk and they're just getting lucky with the words that they're choosing, that uh, they can just happen to speak different languages. But nobody knows what's going on. They're sort of grasping at straws, trying to figure out what's happening. And so Peter gets up and he gives this sermon. And his whole, uh, the reason he gets up to speak is to clarify, to explain what's taking place, uh, to defend the apostles against this accusation, but more so to explain that the Holy Spirit has come down and to explain what's happening. So Peter speaking to the crowd immediately after Pentecost, and this is what he taught. So this is an apostle who is teaching. So we're going to look at the content of his message. What did Peter have to say to the crowd that day? His first point is an important one because he says that Jesus is a person in history. He's not a legend. He's not a myth. He's not uh, a story that's been passed down from generation to generation. But in 2.22, he makes a specific phrase in in speaking to the crowd. He says, as you yourselves know. He said, you who are gathered here, many of you were here when this took place. You saw Jesus walking around. You know that he's not a figment of our imagination, a story that we made up in the upper room. He was a real person. You saw these things take place. He was a person in history. Jesus was known to the community. He lived, he walked, he talked, he performed miracles, he died, he was 
raised in front of this whole community. If we've heard this before, if we've, if we've read scripture before, if we've been in church before, the reality of the historical nature of Jesus might uh, be lost on us. It might have been uh, sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It might have been sort of dumbed down a little bit or glossed over a little bit. But friends, this is a key point of Christianity and the faith in which we believe that distinguishes it from many other faith systems that exist in the world today, the major faith systems that exist. We make a historic claim that within time and space, God came down and in the form of a man died and was raised again. And there's not just biblical authors to that, that there are secular authors to that. It's not just theologized uh, sources who are trying to explain who God is, but other sources as well that say that this man lived, that this man died, and that this man was raised again. That is an important thing for us to remember. The question that the Romans had was not, is the body there or not? The question that the Romans had is, where is the body? That's, that's an important distinguishing uh, thing to, to consider. The faith that we proclaim is based on historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that seems to be the point that Peter is making here. He focuses in specifically on the death of Christ. He says that Jesus was crucified. In, verses, uh, in chapter 2, verses 23, he says in a pretty pointed manner, he says, you who are gathered here in, in the crowd in Jerusalem, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So he's presenting the cross to his audience. He's showing that the death of Christ is central to the message of the apostles' teaching. It's central to who he is, and it's central to the message that he has. He also focuses in on the resurrection that Jesus was raised. Chapter 2, verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Again, he's making historic claims that God entered into the world, that he did something magnificent in us, through us, among us. That's going to set the stage for the growth of the church to come. And this is one of the two central um, facts of the content of the apostles' teaching. It's that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were absolutely, absolutely real. Now, here's the second sort of central point of the, of the apostles' teaching. Peter shows that not only is this grounded in history, but it's grounded in Scripture. We, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but Peter goes into detail. If you just glance down in, at your Bibles, you see these sections that are kind of set apart. They look like maybe instead of prose, they look more like poetry. Um, verses 17 through 22, uh, 25 through 28, and then again, uh, around 34 and 35, these sections that are set apart. In those sections, we won't go through each and every one, but, but Peter points back to the prophet Joel, and he points back to the Psalms, and he says, this Jesus is the fulfillment of these scriptures. Now, where have we heard that before? Who did that? Back in Luke. When Jesus came back and he was walking around, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus said, hey, let's open up these scriptures and let me show you me in these pages and in these words. 
And now we see Peter, the apostle of Christ, doing the exact same thing, saying, let's look at the scriptures. Let's look at the word. Jesus' coming isn't plan B. Jesus' coming uh, wasn't God saying, okay, that one didn't work, Israel, the nation of Israel. Let's try something new. Jesus, I need you to get in there. I need you to get in the game. That's not what's taking place here. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of those promises that have come before. That takes us back to Genesis. That takes us back to Adam and Eve in the garden. That takes us back to God speaking to the serpent and saying that you will bruise his heel serpent, but he will crush your head. That's a promise that God makes from the very beginning. And then it takes us back to Moses in Exodus, right, where God comes down and he says that I will be your God and you will be my people. These aren't promises that get thrown away. These are promises that take root and are fulfilled in Jesus himself and in who he is. Our God is not one who changes his mind. Our God is not one who uh, judges one way and one day and judges another way and another day. Our God is known for his, faithful, his faithfulness and his steadfastness. Our God is known for his reliability. Our God is known for the love that he has for us, that even as we are unfaithful in our response to him, yet still he remains faithful in his response to us. That's the good news of Christ himself. That's the, the news that Peter has for that audience of uh, Jews in, in Jerusalem who have gathered as a people of Israel who are dealing with um, this, this new reality that's unfolding before them as they're dealing with the consequences of Jesus' death at their hands as they're dealing with uh, this new reality that's taking place that the body was gone. What Peter says is, friends, this happened on your watch, but it is still the hope that you have because all of these things needed to take place so that these scriptures could be fulfilled, these scriptures that you know and that you trust, these scriptures by which you live your life. He says that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. And he sums this up in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. <clears throat> that God has made him both Lord, God, and Christ, Messiah, the promised one, salvation itself. Peter recognizes that what he's saying is new and is challenging. He recognizes that the, the teaching of the apostles that Jesus taught him to teach demands a response. It's not something that we can hear and just sit with. It's something that we have to respond to. It's compelling. It compels a response. And Peter recognizes that himself. In verses 38 and 39, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this is key to the teaching of the apostles, just as it was key to the teaching of Jesus himself. That when Jesus comes onto the scene, 
He's a polarizing figure. He's not one that we can just look at, shrug our shoulders, and move on and get about with our day. He's one who demands a response from us, positively or negatively. Many of you may have heard um, C.S. Lewis sums this up well. He says that Jesus was Lord, lunatic, or liar. That's it. Those are the options. That's what, that's what we have. He was either Lord, he was either all that he said he was, all that he proved that he was through his word and action. He was either a, a lunatic, a totally crazy person who somehow was able to convince these apostles to somehow change the world on his behalf at the expense of their own life, all of them. Or he was just a complete liar. Again, unable uh, to do the things he said he could do, but only able to convince people that he could do the things he said he could do. Friends, the, the, the fact that we are gathered in this room today is testimony that Jesus Christ was not a liar. Right? Every lie I've ever said has been revealed. Right? My children, I have a three-year-old daughter, I have a six-month-old son, four doesn't talk uh, yet. He likes to scream, but he doesn't talk. But Grace, at three years old, I've learned um, there's something innate about uh, truth-telling and not truth-telling. At two, right? Whatever we said, she heard, and whatever she said, we could trust. At three, something's changed. I don't know what it is, but something has changed, right? Grace, did you go potty? Oh, yes, I did. Find out the hard way. That's not true, right? But these lies get exposed. There's no lie that has stood the test of time, 2,000 years of time. The lies that I tell can't even stand my own lifetime. They can't even stand, you know, a week or a month or a year. There was a time when I was lying to myself and I was lying to my friends and I was lying to the Lord about who I was. That season lasted for a couple years. I don't look back positively to those years. I look back positively to what the Lord has done in those years and because of those years and what he did in exposing that lie. But lies don't stand the test of time. The same is true if Jesus was a lunatic, if he was a crazy person, right? At the, at the heart of that is another lie, that Jesus wasn't who he said he was and he wasn't who the apostles said that he was, right? That type of lunacy is uh, felt and known and seen. Maybe we've experienced it in our own lives to some degree, but you know when something's just not quite right. That's the difference with Jesus, isn't it? It's different, but it's just right. The way that he fulfills scriptures, the way that it all lines up, the way that he came into the world as a person and as God and the way that he conquered death, like it, it just seems right to the story in which we live our lives. So Peter knew that. He had learned that from who Christ is. He had been transformed by the message that Christ had himself. And now, as an apostle teaching the growing church in Jerusalem, he speaks that word out. And he doesn't do it just once, but the book of Acts is the story of Peter giving these sermons uh, to these different crowds. And then it shifts to Paul, and the focus sort of picks up on Paul, who has a message for the Gentiles, as Peter has a message uh, for the Israelites. And Paul continues these sermons and he's preaching this exact same word 
as the church grows and grows and grows. The message doesn't change. If you haven't spent any time in the book of Acts, I encourage you to do so. It's, it's a great read because what you see is that the message of the apostles doesn't change. The context in which they speak it changes. The examples and illustrations that they use to expound on it changes. But Christ is the center of the content of their teaching. He doesn't change. He's the center of their lives and he's the center of their teaching. I want to read a a quote to you that sort of um, exemplifies really this response that's before us when we hear the gospel and, and we have to respond to it. Now they were asked to make a clear-cut commitment and symbolize their response of faith by public baptism. And if they did, well, then everything that Jesus' death and resurrection promised would become theirs. Full forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The God they had scorned would welcome even them and entering their lives, fill them with power to launch out new lives. That's the content of the apostles' teaching. It is hope that is found in Christ, and it is life that is found in Christ. My prayer for St. John's as the body of Christ is that each one of you in this room and each one of uh, those who call themselves a member of the body of St. John's, member of the body of Christ at St. John's, my hope is that you would know this hope as well as Peter did. My hope is that every day you would feel the conviction of the gospel as Peter did. My hope is that you would recognize that today is the day that the Lord has given me to respond faithfully to who he's made me to be. That you would check your mail with that in mind. That you would cut your grass with that in mind. That you would volunteer your time and your talent and your treasure with that in mind. Because you are the church. Because you are the mechanism by which God has granted his truth to be known in this community and in this world. So that's my hope for you. That's my hope for us as we join together in the coming months in ministry. Okay, let's shift gears to number three. The third thing as we look at the apostles' teaching, what was the method? How did they do it? It's not as simple as it looks, unfortunately. It's not quite as simple as it looks. It takes more than just word. It takes more than just Peter getting up and saying these things. It takes a word that is enacted, that's put on flesh, that's given hands and feet and and moved around, a belief that's given life. So it takes both word and action. So we mentioned how Acts is the story of the spread of the church as the apostles carry out this mission. And everywhere the apostles went, they carried this gospel with them and they expressed it both in word and in action. So we're going to take a look at that and we're going to look again uh, we're going to flip a few pages in the book of Acts. We're going to pick up the story with Paul. If you'll flip to, Paul, uh, to chapter 13. And I just want to show you, if you'll look at the headings, this is what Acts is about, as we mentioned, um, that they, the apostles were going on these journeys and they were taking the, the gospel with them. So you see... Um, 13 verse 1, Barnabas and and Saul set off. And then you see uh, Barnabas and Saul on Cyprus. Then you see Paul and Barnabas at Antioch in Pisidia. And then you keep going in chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas at Iconium, 
Paul stoned at Lystra. That doesn't sound good. Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch. <clears throat> right? So they were taking, they were, they were taking this message with them as Christ had compelled them to from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. It was this magnification of the message that's taking place. So chapter 13, verse 4 through 12, 4 through 12, we're dealing with Paul and Barnabas on Cyprus. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to, I should have prepared this word, Seleucia. We'll go with that. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So by word, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus is, uh, he doesn't like what's going on. He's got himself a little bit of a reputation for being the, 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 the magician, the guy who can do the wondrous things, right? That's, that's his identity. That's who he is. He doesn't really appreciate that Barnabas and Saul are sort of treading on his territory. He doesn't like the message that they're proclaiming because it says that you actually, uh, Bar-Jesus, you don't have any power. Christ does. That sort of irks him a little bit. So he follows him along, uh, and he... Um, he, he he goes against what they're teaching. Um, and so Paul, uh, who's called Saul, gets a little annoyed by this. And so we pick up the story um, in verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, at Bar-Jesus the magician, and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And then immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Just so you know, I've never been able to do that. I'm not sure if anybody here has either. That's not a gift that the Lord has given me yet. Uh, we'll see. I'm new in my ministry career. Who knows what's going to happen? You might not have had that either. But the, the miracle can distract us from what's taking place. What's taking place is Paul and Barnabas spoke the word of God, and then they acted faithfully on the word of God. Now, Paul had some, some powers, right, some connection, being one of the original apostles that, whom Jesus appeared to directly. He had an ability to do some things um, that maybe we haven't sort of mustered ourselves just yet. The Lord hasn't equipped us in that same way. But what Paul did that enabled him to do that miracle, right, was he responded faithfully in his actions on the belief and on the word that he preached. See, it's not just the word that matters. It's not just the word that is spoken. It's not just the faith that we say and that we possess in ourselves but it's the way that faith is enacted and brought to life. There's an author uh, by the names of James K.A. Smith, uh, and he wrote a book called You Are What You Love. Uh, and there are a couple other books that I recommend. Um, the other three are a little more uh, suitable to some guy who has a lot of time sitting in a classroom reading theological books. Um, but You Are What You Love is a great sort of intro into what 
uh, James K.A. Smith has to say. Uh, and he, James K.A. Smith, directly goes against what we've probably all heard of as one of the definitions of, of personhood, which was given by Descartes. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Because I'm able to, to process thought intellectually, that is the root of my identity. And what James K.A. Smith says is that's not exactly true. He calls that, it's a funny phrase, he calls that thinking thingism. Thinking thingism. He says it's not personhood. He said if that were true, then we would be heads on a stick. He said if that were true, then every time you felt conviction, it would immediately lead to heart change. It would immediately lead to habit formation, new habit formation. He said, if all we had to do was to think, if that was all that there was that made us up, then things would certainly be a lot easier, right? I'd, I'd, I'd be fit as a fiddle because I would have understood how important it is to get out and exercise every morning, and that's all it would take. I would be convicted, and my actions would immediately follow. But he says there's more to the story. He says that what we do actually has an effect on us. The things that we do, the habits that we form, the decisions that we make sort of day in and day out, they make up part of who we are as well, that we aren't just brains. We're not just brains on a stick, but we are given flesh and given life. And so what that means is that our faith actually comes alive when it is enacted. Our faith comes alive when it is walked out, when it is put into practice. And that in putting it into practice, it's not that our, our work then saves us, right? That's a, the whole debate between uh, Paul and Galatians and James. It's not that that action actually saves us in any way, but it is our faith that is made alive to us. Imagine if Mozart only thought about pianos. Now imagine Mozart actually sitting at a piano. How beautiful is that when he actually plays the notes that he has thought up, when he actually plays the keys and the music just surrounds the room and brings life to the thought that's in his head. So it's both in word and action we see uh, in this story that Paul uh, brings this message of Jesus uh, to the people. The same thing happens in uh, verse 14, Paul and, Barnabas at, Paul and Barnabas at Iconium. So they entered the Jewish synagogue. There were some disinter, dissenters in the crowd, and the response of Paul and Barnabas was, they remained a long time. They spoke boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It was in the faithful response of staying put that the Lord worked through their hands. So again, we see the, the Lord working through them to bear witness to the word of his grace. To sum up sort of this point of the means by which the apostles did their teaching, both in word and action, we can just, if we just take the, the apostles and we compare them with what we know of Israel, right, the story of Israel throughout time was unfaithful response, Right? They, they did things right for a little bit, and then they fell away, and they, they had a golden calf right after they received the law. But God remained faithful, 
He renewed the covenant. And then they wandered around in the desert for a little bit. They were forced to wander because they were unfaithful. But God remained steadfast, and he rose up a a new generation and a new leader in Joshua. And they took the promised land that the Lord promised them. And and that went pretty well for a while, except they forgot to listen to everything that the Lord said. Right? And so they, they fell under this time of the judges where they were listening to the Lord sometimes and most times not. Now compare that with the story in Acts of the Apostles. See, the the Apostles were filled with the Spirit, and they were filled with the knowledge and love of Christ, and they responded time and time again faithfully to what the Lord was doing. And that enabled the church to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow. Their faith was made alive in their response. So we're just going to finish up here by taking a look quickly at the apostles' teaching today. So apostle, the word apostle, is eyewitness of Christ. That's the difference between an apostle and a disciple. So the apostles at this point have died about 2,000 years ago, give or take. So what does that mean for us? If we are the church, we are the disciples who followed after the apostles, who followed after Christ, how do we participate in the apostles' teaching? So we're just going to take a quick look at that as we wrap up and sort of brainstorm because this is where some creativity is needed. And creativity is hard, right? It's always harder to think a little bit longer and and to come up with a creative solution and then to implement that as opposed to doing the thing that sort of has always been done. Creativity is hard, but it's God made us to be creative people, right? He is the great creator. We are made in his image. Creation and creating is a part of who we are. So we're just going to think creatively a little bit here as we wrap up. So if there are no apostles alive, how do we continue in this apostles' teaching? First, let me say, join me in resisting the urge to say anything new. Don't say anything new. Let your content and your source remain to be Jesus Christ. Let it be the work that he has done in your life. Right? Speak the story that he is writing in your life. Because it's a story that you get wrapped up in, but, but it's not your story. It's his story. It's his story of faithfulness that's being played out in your life. It's his story of salvation that's being played out in your life. That you get to receive, that you get to participate in, that you get to, uh, to share with your neighbor and with your friend. Right? It's the hope and the overflow of the love of God. That's the news that we have to share. It, it's not any ability of our own to save anybody else. I was asked that question. On Monday and Tuesday, I had the last, um, the last big test before I get the bishop's approval to be ordained to the diaconate and then eventually to the priesthood. And I had this question come up, and they said, how many people have you saved? And I said, I haven't saved a single person. And they looked at me and they said, are you sure? And I said, I, I absolutely promise I've not saved a single person. That's not in my job description right? That's not in your job description either. Don't let that weight weigh on you. It is not your job to save, to present the gospel so perfectly that they, the person that you're speaking to hears it so perfectly that because of your actions, they are able to make that response. Friends, that's missing the mark a little bit. That's not our job. Modern phrase kids are saying these days, stay in your lane. Your lane is not to save. Your lane is to present the truth of Christ and the hope that overflows in your life because of what he has done 
in and through you. So join me. Resist the urge to say anything new. Secondly, let's teach in both word and action. It's one thing to get up here and to do this and and to speak to you, but you actually have a much harder job day in and day out. Right? There's something about being uh, on the little sheet with your, with your picture. Right? There's an expectation that, that, oh, this guy's got something to say. I'm going to go sit and eat and, and, and hear what that is. You don't have the benefit of that right? necessarily. But what you do have is authentic and true relationship with your family and with your friends and with your coworkers and with your neighbors. They know you. They know who you are. They know you as the person who has been saved by Christ. That is the entryway for this gospel message to go forward in Florence. Right? It's through your, your word and through your action as the body of Christ, individually and together. So we don't have the apostles necessarily, but we do have their method. We do have their source. We do have their content. It's been laid out for us very helpfully in Scripture. We can always turn to Scripture and breathe new life into our own faith as we read the words of Christ, as we read about what we are called to do. And as our life and our faith is made alive through our actions together. So that's the apostles' teaching. That's what it is. It is Christ himself. Christ as the source. Christ as the content. Christ as through the Holy Spirit enabling us to walk forward and to bring that truth forward. That's my hope for us as we join together in ministry in Florence. I know I've heard many, many good things about this church. I know I'm not saying anything new that you haven't already heard, that you haven't already done yourselves, and I'm excited to join in what the Lord is doing here uh, in and through and with you all. Let me pray as we close. Lord, you are the giver of life the giver of all good deeds, Lord, the one who is able to enable, uh, that, who enables us to do good work in your name, the works which you have laid before us, that you have prepared for us to do from long ago. Lord, it is our faith made alive that saves as we work and act as your body here on earth. Lord, it's not our work that saves, it's your work that saves, Lord, but it's our faithful response which you and your wisdom have chosen to be your vehicle for the salvation of this world and in this community, of our neighbors and of our friends, of our family, from generation to generation. Lord, as we focus today on the apostles' teaching, would would that truth seek down deep into our hearts? Lord, would it move beyond our brain? Would it not just be a thought, Lord, but but would it be a conviction that, that pierces the heart? Would it lead to new habits and new actions in our lives? We pray all these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.